right. I really can't Oh, stay. baby, don't hold out, baby. Oh, it's cold outside. Happy, happy holiday, everyone, from the world's number one pinball podcast, Canada's Pinball Podcast, episode 291. It's cold outside, but you're going to get warmed up with an amazing, amazing podcast. I have a special guest on this episode, an intelligent, articulate man of business. And his name, we're going to call CEO Dave. And he leads a $30 million company. He manages people. He understands a lot about what it takes to run a successful company. And he's also a pinball fanatic. And what we're going to do, and this is going to be a series of shows, okay? We've broken them up is we are going to do a SWOT analysis of pinball companies. And we're gonna do one at a time. And SWOT analysis, S-W-O-T, stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And we're also gonna talk about the strategies and the marketing plans of these companies. But I think it's a really, really fun deep dive into each of these manufacturers. I hope you guys enjoy it. I would love to hear your feedback on each of our uh, commentary on each manufacturer. And here's the thing, the other part, I'm getting more people email me that they wanna hear more of the master episodes remain. So if you feel strongly either way, email me at canadapinball at gmail.com. Um, happy, happy holidays. Ladies and gentlemen, here is CEO Dave. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome a very special guest to Canada's Pinball Podcast. Yes, there is someone else on planet Earth who will do an interview with Canada. I want to welcome what I'm going to call, or who I'm going to call, CEO Dave to the show. Dave, welcome to Canada's Pinball Podcast. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. It's awesome to have you, and you might recognize the voice. Dave left me a really articulate um, response to Jersey Jack Pinball. And what we're going to do with Dave, because Dave's a business guy, runs a, a company that is in the tens of millions, um, has had many jobs in tech. So he, he has a, a background in building companies. And, and Dave came to me and said, how about we analyze some of these pinball companies? And that's what we're going to do on this episode. Does that sound like a good way to spend an hour, Dave? Yeah, I'm excited. Let's do it. All right. And what we're going to do, because Dave has actually done some homework, we're going to do a SWOT analysis of pinball companies. And we're really just going to deconstruct them and give our opinions on uh, the different manufacturers, what we think their challenges are, um, what we think the opportunities are. But we're not going to do all the manufacturers on this episode. We're going to break it up. The th Dave, which three should we focus on for episode one of our business marketing analysis of pinball companies? Yeah, I love it. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd love to start with um, Stern, Jersey Jack, and Spooky. All right. That's, that's completely fine. Those are sort of like the top three in most people's mind in terms of pinball companies that have been around for the last few years or 30 years if we're talking about Stern. Um, all right. So let's do this. So we want to we want to tackle this, Dave, um, by doing a SWOT analysis. Now, for those of you who don't follow marketing or business, a SWOT analysis stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to these companies, okay? So let's start with what we feel are the strengths for Stern Pinball. And I'm going to let you go first because I think people will learn from you 
Dave, and they will probably um, get dumber when they listen to me. So I'm going to let you <laughs> start this off. So what do you think the strengths are for Stern Pinball? Yeah, sure. So I think Stern has three primary strengths. I, I think the first is obvious. They are the dominant player in the market, right? From a market share perspective, talent that they've got in-house, uh, brand recognition, they are the 800-pound gorilla in the market. So so that is clearly a strength. Um, I think the second strength, I would say, is they have reached economies of scale, right? Like they've sorted out how to do manufacturing at scale. They have an incredible dealer distribution network. They've really sort of figured that out. The last piece I would say, and I think this is going to be increasingly important next year or the year after, is let, don't forget Stern is a private equity-backed company, right? And so private equity firms are ones that have a lot of money, and they invest in private companies, and they are backed by a private equity company, um, which means they've got money to tap if the economy goes south. Um, okay. And so, you know, with pinball being what it is, it's a bit of a luxury. Um, they can kind of weather a downturn if needed. Right. And we hear that a lot. We hear what happens if the economy dips. But history has shown that even in a soft economy, pinball has seemed to weather the storm pretty well in, in previous years when the economy's dipped. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. Um, I think that's true. But it is comforting. I mean, if I were Stern, I, it would be comforting to know I had, I had that money in hand just in case, right? Because even if <clears throat> pinball still stays strong, you have a lot of competition coming to the market in a time where, you know, we probably will go into recession in the next two years. And so you got to wonder if you're sort of ramping up, you know, deep root or you're ramping up um, spooky or whomever, you know, that might be tough for folks to get through and it might be an opportunity for Stern to buy other people. Right. Okay. And, and, and so we don't know, do, do we, do we know who their private equity firm is? Did you mention that? Yeah, well, we do, and I'm glad you brought that up. So their private equity firm is a firm called Haggerty Peterson, which um, is in Illinois. And, and there's two things that interest me about this. One is that um, I have actually worked with PE firms, private equity firms, in the past. And what's interesting to me is that generally they like to buy about 85% of a company, right? I don't know how much they bought of Stern, right? Like, who knows? It's, it's private. But I do know that like on average, they'd like to at least buy 85%, if not more. So there's an interesting question there about like, <clears throat> you know, you'll say that Gary Stern has a cash grab, you know, with the Beatles. Um, that might not be going to Gary Stern, right? Like he may not own much of the company uh, at this point. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is that according to the Stern website, they brought on that PE firm in 2009. Uh, and most PE firms... What they do is they buy these assets, they grow them, and then they sell them, and they sell them to other PE firms. Um, and so usually they like to have an, what they call an exit in about five, maybe six years. Um, but Stern's PE company has held on to Stern for 10 years. And so why is that? You know, are, are they friends with Gary because they're local? Um, maybe. Are they, you know, uh, having a hard time selling Stern is something else, um, doubtful. Because Could the they just be making a, a ton of money because they're selling exactly. LEDs for $9,000 and we're all buying you got them? It. You got it. You got it, dude. Like, 
the PE market's been really frothy and these companies buy and sell from each other all the time. And it's become bigger than the IPO market. And so the fact that they've held Stern for 10 years, I think means they're probably making really good money off this company. And I've heard from my friends over at Stern who would kill me if I told anyone on this podcast who they are, that Stern year after year over the last few years has had their best year to date and each year it keeps growing. So it doesn't surprise me. I think the last three to four years especially have been extremely profitable for Stern Pinball. Um, so that probably is why they're holding on. So I, I'm looking at your strengths list here, Dave, too. And, and what about the fact that Stern just has the distribution model locked down? Yeah, that's, that's, that, I mean, that's huge. It's incredible. Like both domestic and international, right? Like they literally own the channel for the majority of the pinball market. And that's, I think when you look at competitors like Deep Root, you know, for all their hubris and, and ego and sort of excitement to build something great, it's going to be tremendously difficult and take a long time to kind of replicate the Stern distribution model. Like that is 30 plus years of hard work. And that's a real competitive advantage for them. And we, we keep hearing that, right? That there's there are desires by these other companies to reach customers without a distributor model, almost like you would buy directly from them. And But do you think that would work with Pinball, knowing that these are devices that people do like to have that local support on hand because these machines do have a tendency to need maintenance and be set up properly? And what, what are your thoughts? I mean, how many people will buy direct? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, <clears throat> I think there's an opportunity and we'll get into this when it comes to Jersey Jack. Um, I think there is an opportunity to kind of invest more in direct to consumer sales. And I think there's a way to do that and still provide that support. I don't think that's a good path for Stern, right? Like Stern has a much bigger operation for one of the smaller guys. I think it actually does make sense to go more direct to consumer. We can talk about that in a bit, but that would be disastrous for Stern. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Now it, within the strengths, as we're doing a SWOT analysis within the strengths bucket, these are, are these things that are purely business strengths, but they're like, so for, for example, like does Stern having, the best licenses and the ability to secure the best licenses, does, would that go in the strength section here? Yeah, I, I think so. And that's a great point, Chris. <clears throat> I also think talent, right? When we say they're the dominant player, well, that's market share, it's the licenses, it's, it's the distribution channel, but also like the talent that they have on hand. I mean, Lyman Sheets is pretty irreplaceable, right? And that is, that is a real strength for them. Um, the Stern strength list and it is going to be the longest of any company that we talk about ever. I mean, right? I mean, no, yeah. you could keep going. They've got the most talent, and, and we're and, and and listener of the show. This is not a a Stern shill podcast, but you can't deny the fact that the strengths of Stern Pinball are indicative, and we see it every day because they have ninety plus percent of the market for a reason. So they do have the best talent. They have the best distribution. They have the best clout and licensing and merchandising ability because when they go to secure a license, they can show an IP holder 30 years right of, of making this product where someone else who's brand new has no proof 
that they can get it done. In fact, there's so many more companies that have failed at securing new IP and botched the whole process that that probably makes Stern's pitch even easier. Look what happened to That's Alien, guys. Point. Look what happened to Predator. You should go with us. It's a great point, Chris. It's a great point. You're, you're absolutely right. All right, but because this show is also, Dave, the most negative pinball podcast on the planet, let's <laughs> talk about Stern's weaknesses. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> well, um, so as you have educated your, your listeners, like uh, quality control, right, from playfield chipping to cabinet splitting, like, you know, you can go through Pinside and see everyone complaining about quality control. So it does seem like quality kind of ebbs and flows at CERN. Um, so that has some, that's been something that, that sort of haunts them. Um, I, I think there's probably two other weaknesses that I think about. One is, you know, despite the fact that their talent pool is part of their strengths, um, bear in mind, this is an aging talent pool, right? Like Steve Ritchie is almost 70. Dwight, the young buck, is in his 50s, right? Like George and, and Lyman are probably in their 50s as well. And so, you know, these are not spring chickens making these machines, right? And, like, you have to wonder, like, everyone has sort of a, a professional shelf life. Like, their core talent is hitting the backside of their professional shelf life, and that is a real weakness. Um, I would add that to Dave. I would add to yeah. that. Even I think this goes along with the age. I would add that one of their weaknesses is that I think these guys they run out of ideas, and and I and I mean that because I think that cookie cutter or seeing the same stuff over and over again is a definite weakness when you're trying to get people excited about pinball and you know and and get that hype going with each new release. So I, I think that goes along with the fact that these guys have been doing it for so many years. They just they just run out of creative ideas and that's just a natural sure. thing a creative person goes through. Totally. I I think you're right. <clears throat> I think you're right. I mean, so that that's a real weakness is that their core talent pool is all well over 50. Right. <laughs> at this point. Um and you're right. And getting a bit stale, I mean, in, in some quarters, that probably is not, they don't have that issue. I don't think they have that issue on the design side, right? Right. Like, as you point out, like, they're, they're pretty good there. But um, I, I think the last thing is economies of scale is a real strength, but it's also a weakness, right? So it's a weakness in that it's a large operation. They've got a big overhead to maintain. They have to keep that line moving, like, they can't really afford to have much downtime because they're paying a lot of salary. So, you know, it, that, that's a risk or a weakness that, that they carry by being the biggest. Right. And, and we, we definitely see that. And, and I think alongside that for me is having to keep the line moving means that they're on a strict schedule with all of these games because they can't afford, right, to have a week or two where the line has stopped because the cost is so humongous for them. On every day, they're not making 50 or 100 games. And I think that also, to me, adds a weakness I would have for Stern is I think they're vulnerable. Uh, and this is sort of like a weird thing to say in a weakness uh, uh, column, but I think they're vulnerable in the sense that they're not, putting as much magic or wow into these games because they need to keep the line moving. And I think they've found the shortest 
or a little bit of a shortcut where if it's artwork and theme and LCD, they don't need to do as much mechanically. So I think the games themselves are vulnerable when they're put next to other manufacturers' games that there just doesn't seem like there's as much in them. But that's a little bit of a subjective thing. But I definitely think the, in the competitive landscape of pinball, people are going to be comparing your game to everything else out there. And if it doesn't have as much in it, the dollars could go elsewhere, right? So, yeah, that, that's, that's a great point. You're right. Yeah. Okay, Agreed. so the next thing on our SWOT analysis are the opportunities. Interesting to talk about opportunities with a with a company like Stern that's got 90% of the market. <laughs> you know, they're doing a lot really well. But what do you think the opportunities are for Stern Pinball? Well, I, I think because they have 90% of the market, like where the market goes is where Stern goes, right? So if the market grows, they benefit. And if the market shrinks, they feel it the most because they are the biggest player. So I, I actually think they're uniquely positioned from both a capital and a scale perspective to broaden this market. Um, and we can sort of talk about some specific opportunities there, but, <clears throat> you know, the, the pinball market, um, you know, it's had a little bit of a resurgence, but if you actually look at the statistics, it's, it, you know, it's a $200 million market, right? Um, it's not that big. Board games are like 10x the size of pinball. Trading cards are like half the size of the pinball market. Right, so it's not a particularly big market that they're, that they're dominant in. So I think if I were Stern, um, I would be thinking about how do I grow the addressable market? How do I grow the market size? Right. Um, so that that's one. I I think there's just maybe quickly there's two other opportunities. I think they have to get young talent in, and I think there's an opportunity to do an apprentice program with an engineering school in the Midwest. Right, somewhere in the Illinois region, like I think there's a way to do kind of a northeastern style uh, co-op program potentially, where they can kind of bring in new talent um, to kind of backfill some of those older aging designers. And then I think lastly, Chris, and I'd love to hear your thought on this. Um, you know, Stern has a pretty deep catalog of titles of their own, like their own IP. Like, is there an opportunity to kind of go back into the vault? And not just do another refresh of like Spider-Man, but, you know, would it make sense from a market perspective to have Zombie Yeti like actually do a new version of Sea Witch? Like, would there be demand for that? And does it make sense to kind of show off their own in-house IP? I, I don't know. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, the original IP stuff, I, I, I would say, is always a difficult thing to create modern day demand for where i think the opportunity lies though is in renewing some of the existing games that they have in their portfolio but modernizing them with new art so for example imagine christopher franchi doing lord of the rings again you don't mm -hmm. have to design the game it's yep. one of the best coded games of all time but you could refresh that game and give it high-res artwork with some of their new artists. And, and I think that would sell like gangbusters, right? Now, that comes with the cost of renewing the license. And we know that that is an issue. Um, but, you know, I, I, there's a lot there. Like Tron's another good example. If we look at the games that people really want and, and the vault approach, which I think is smart, um, I, I think the, 
the smart approach with vaults is is to refresh them in a way like they did Spider-Man. And I think there's a lot of, of, of potential sales there. Uh, but you know what's hard though, because as, even as I think about it, Dave, with with Stern releasing four new titles a year, three of them are cornerstone games. You know, we didn't really talk about this as a weakness, but I think this should be brought up is is simple market fatigue of how many years can they release so many games? At what point do people run out of money and room to keep absorbing this many titles? That's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, I I think you're right. And I mean, not to mention that, you know, it's going to be a really crowded year next year with, with, you know, sort of all the planned titles coming. And so I think you're right. Like, I think I, if I were sort of working at Stern, I would be very concerned about like, how do we broaden, how do we broaden this market? Because we've got a bunch of PE capital. It's a small niche market that has been largely shrinking over the last 10 years. Um, and you know where this market goes is where our fortunes are going to go. And so, h- how do we grow it? Right. I think is a really important question. Right, and I think your opportunity list is great. A few things I want to add. One would be, I do think there's an opportunity to make a pinball experience, and this goes to your first point, to a broader audience of player. And I think to do that, they need to start thinking about how could I create whether it's modes or an ability to start a game where a casual player can figure it out and understand how to jump on it and have fun. So I'll give you just an example that just popped into my head as I'm looking at Batman. Imagine just a beginner's mode for dummies where all we're trying to do is see who can hit the crane the most times in two minutes. It keeps feeding you balls, you're smacking at the crane, and that's yeah. a beginner mode just to get people comfortable with flipping, with trapping a ball. You know, I think there's an opportunity to do that, to sort of make these games more approachable. I also think the biggest opportunity is to finally add some sort of internet connectivity to pinball. And yeah. I, I, I can't believe we're working with an electromechanical toy in 2018 and the internet is nowhere to be found with it. Yeah, I I agree. I I agree. I I think you're spot on. Like, do you think there's <clears throat> like if you look at movie theaters, right? That are hungry. They they definitely attract a younger demographic, right? Like the folks going to movies are still pretty much like high school and sort of college age. Um, they are having trouble getting folks to come out. Right. And so they're looking for reasons to kind of drag people back into theaters. Um, and you've only really got a couple of big chains that own most of the theater uh, that are in the U.S. Like, I wonder, do you think there's a play to kind of strike a deal with Lowe's or AMC or someone like that to sort of throw a bunch of games into theaters and see if that's a way to expand the base? Do you think that might have some effect with the younger audience? No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll explain why. I, I just okay. I still think like and I and that and I hear from some of my operator friends who have who have like redemption games on location yep. at movie theaters. It it's just and that's a good question though of, of like an overall weakness for the entire hobby is how do you get young people into pinball? And we and we don't have to tackle that because that's like trying to boil the ocean with the entire industry. Sure. Um, 
I, I think pinball broadens. I do. I think it broadens with the right themes. Like, you know how many people probably just bought Ghostbusters because they freaking love Ghostbusters, right? They walk into yeah. a distributor, they want a game for their home, and they see Ghostbusters, or they see Batman, or they see Star Wars. I think theme helps broaden your audience. And that's also why I think I would look at, well, what kinds of themes could I do that would be of appeal to maybe a younger buyer, maybe someone in their early yep. 30s or mid-30s that, you know, has a little bit more money, he's got a better job right now, he's, he's, he's looking to have some fun and put something fun into his house or apartment. You know, I don't see, and that's where I think the old guys that are like making all the decisions are sort of getting out of touch with the kinds of themes that a, a, a younger, more contemporary pinball fan would be into. Yeah, yeah, so, that makes sense. <clears throat> I, I I used to work for a licensing company, um, and the guy that ran it, who you know from Marvel, used to say that it's around the age of thirty-five, where people sort of when, when they turn thirty-five is when their um, their disposable income really you know starts to grow, and they can buy stupid stuff, and when they're particularly wistful for the things of the past, yeah. <laughs> the, the shows they remember as a kid or the brands. And so it's really like around your mid thirties. Um, so you, yeah, I mean, you can very easily sort of like backtrack and take a look at for folks that are 35 years of age today. Like what were the hot shows and properties right. back then? The, the and, challenge, yeah. the challenge will always be this with pinball is the problem is there starts to become a gap because if you get the people like in their in like in their early 30s now, right? They didn't grow up around any arcade scene whatsoever. Mm. So, you know what I'm saying? They grew up yeah. in the PlayStation Xbox world, the internet world of video gaming. And so what happens then is they don't have a longing for pinball on any level. And so the the only yeah. way to hook the next generation is to is to get them at barcades and to get them into pinball leagues and and that's a really difficult thing to do and and you know again we're we're getting down into that like macro level of like will sure. people just age out of pinball and is this the last golden age of pinball sales and does stern know this and that's why they're giving us like the monsters which is probably the most unrelatable title to someone who's in their 30s uh, that's fair. That's fair. Right? So, yeah, it's, it's a good question. So that leads us good to our last point of the SWOT analysis, which are the threats to Stern Pinball. Now, what do you think are the threats, Dave, to Stern Pinball? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest point is what you just hit on, which is that the pinball hobby today is dominated by, you know, old and busted white guys in their 50s. And so, my, you know, myself included in that cohort. And so who is buying these games in 10, 15, 20 years, right? Like that, that's the biggest threat. But right. um, I think sort of taking it down a level, um, the most immediate threat for next year really is like the increased amount of selection for buyers, right? Like there's a lot more manufacturers. There'll be a lot more inventory in the market. It's a very small buyer base. And so, you know, even if folks are not buying spooky or deep root or JJP or whatever, it's still a giant distraction that Stern, you know, has not had to deal with prior. And so that, that's a real threat. I, I do think specifically, and I might have been influenced by you by saying this, um, 
I do think Chicago gaming and JJP specifically are real competitive threats to Stern, like full on. I, I, I don't buy that, that comment that like Stern grabbed Godzilla to like thwart Charlie. I mean, maybe, maybe, but I don't think Stern thinks of Spooky as a competitive threat. Um, but I do think they worry about Chicago gaming and JJP. Uh, yeah, what, what do you they, think? They, they grabbed Godzilla simply because they were mad that Scott Denisi didn't make TNA with Stern. I mean, huh. it, it was a, it was a, it was a soap opera power play. Um, I, look, I I think for Stern again, the biggest threat is that the industry over time will shrink. It won't keep growing, and they know this. I think they're smart. I I think another threat that they have are obviously those manufacturers you mentioned because if Jersey Jack can really finally make a great game like a Willy Wonka or a Toy Story, like a theme people actually want. And I was walking home tonight, Dave, and I was joking with a friend about who loves pinball as well. And I was like, there's a reason why Jersey Jack can't sell out of collector's edition because nobody effing really wants dialed in the Hobbit or Pirates of the Caribbean as a theme. Right. Right, but right. watch how quick Willy Wonka Collector's Edition sells out. Watch how quick Toy Story yeah. sells out. So I, I and, and I'm not sure, you know, Chicago Gaming with Monster Bash, I think they're going to sell their thousand or whatever of these remakes. And it definitely is a threat because it, it, it's taking money out of the marketplace and, and they're betting on a, a, a horse they know wins a race with these old titles that people love. But... Again, I think they're also going to run into a little bit of fatigue. And I think, you know, Stern doesn't have so many threats. I think their biggest enemy is themselves. And I, and I, and I mean that. Mm -hmm. I think Stern's biggest threat to people leaving Stern's shores for other companies' shores is Stern cutting too many corners. I, I think if they, oh, keep, if they keep improving what's in their games with these licenses, with the cadence, and with the you know, the art packages and the code. And if they keep going in that right direction, I think they're going to be pretty unbeatable. They're not going to lose much of that market share. Uh, and that means that Jersey Jack and Chicago Gaming and Deep Root, the onus is on them to make something that is much more magical than what Stern is putting in a box. But So that will be yeah. opportunities for those companies. Um, yeah, for sure. So let's talk about, if we're going to look at these companies we don't have to go deep into all this, but in terms of sales yep. and marketing, and we can kind of yep. talk about how these companies are targeting people, what they're doing to sort of reach customers and get people excited and get them hyped to buy their products. So how do you think Stern does in terms of their, their sales and marketing approach uh, for pinball? Yeah. I mean, if we look at <clears throat> just thinking about 2019, um, investing in that distribution channel, I think makes a lot of sense for them, right? Like they've got this amazing competitive advantage with the distributors. Um, they clearly are careful not to disrupt that. It's a hard thing for others to disrupt. Um, and so I think, you know, as we look at like marketing dollars, you know, really their primary buyer is in fact the distributor. Right. And so, you know, if I were in charge of marketing over there, like I would be putting at least half of my marketing dollars into supporting um, that distributor channel. Right. Because I think it, it's really important. 
I do. I, Can we stop I do there for a second, Dave? I want yeah, to stop there sure, for a second because bet, I think that's such an bet. important point. Is once a distributor buys a game from Stern, the game is sold. <laughs> yeah, Stern doesn't see more money if a distributor flips it or someone flips it. That game is now sold through to the distributor. Stern is paid, so they don't care how many people buy Primus Pinball because 100 of them have been sold through to Primus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I <clears throat> totally agree. And I mean, they just got to get these machines out and that distribution channel is really powerful and effective. And I mean, even look at the Beatles example where, you know, they gave the power of pricing to the distributors. I mean, you could argue that that was a little cowardly, right? <laughs> to sort of put that on them to kind of figure it out. But it's also like it's an incredible vote of confidence uh, in that channel. And I think it shows how important it is for the company. So I think continuing to invest in that is really going to help ward off any kind of competitive threats in the market. The other piece, and Chris, I'd love to hear your thought on this. Like we've heard you talk about, which I think is right, you know, how great Zombietti's artwork is, how great Christopher Franchi's artwork is. Um, there's a lot of great artists out there, right? A ton. And like, I really don't understand why any of the companies, but in particular Stern, sort of leans so heavy on just those two artists to the point of kind of burning them out. Like, I, I would agree. Argue, it's, it's like, you know, I, yeah. I absolutely agree. You should never see any artist have back-to-back -back games like Iron Maiden and Deadpool, like both... The, and then, you know, three titles from Yeti in one year. All you got to do is go on DeviantArt and look at all the different incredible artists that are out there. And I agree. I, I think there's too much. We found this person and we're just going to keep using them over and over and over again. I have one caveat, though, is I do think that Franchi's art style just works so well with pinball because of the kind of medium pinball is. It just works perfect on that yeah. play field because you need a little bit of like a flatter detailed artwork. You can't get too layered and too, it's, you can't get too busy. And yeah, I think he has got sure. a, a very perfect style for pinball. Um, but I also, you know, I also think it should be a special occasion when these guys come out. But I also think you could have three or four special artists. We haven't seen Dirty Donnie do anything in a sure. while, so I think he's also on the roster as well. Uh, but yeah, you got to mix it up. You got to mix it up as much as possible. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there are a ton of great artists out there. Art, in the grand scheme of things, is not that expensive, so like it would not take much to kind of broaden that pool out. But th there's two organizational things that I would just hit on. Stern, <laughs> like I do think. Um, you had mentioned potential competitive threat of people being poached at a stern, right? And, and you specifically mentioned, like, if you're kind of just pumping out machines and there's not a lot of innovation, that talent might be poachable but by other companies. And I think that's right. Like, I wonder if it makes sense if, if you were working at stern to kind of set a bonus plan tied to profitability and quality assurance, quite honestly, right? Because quality has been sort of hit or miss. So, like, I wonder if it makes sense to be like, hey, we're going to give everyone a bonus if we hit these profit margins and, you know, we get a 
customer NPS quality score of X or above. Like, I wonder if that makes sense. And then the other piece that I think about is Gary is not going to live forever, right? Like he's well into his seventies. And so outside of George Gomez, like who is that second tier of management at Stern that takes over when Gary retires? Right? Right. Like I, I wonder if this is the year to start thinking about getting that second tier of management in place. Yeah, and, and look, and I, I think we probably should have said this right at the beginning, Dave, is like, we don't really have a ton of information into the internal workings of these organizations, right? A lot of it is private. We don't know the numbers. We don't know the entire management teams. I, look, I, if I were to guess, I mean, and George is pretty young and vibrant. Every time I see George, he's in good shape. Um, I think he's going to be around for a long time. But they've got they've got Mr. Sharp over there who could be, a, you know, if I'm looking at the, the, the chain of command that could learn how to, like, be the next captain of the stern ship um, i think they could find um, someone young to, to to take the reins and gary's probably not doing anything other than cash and checks i mean <laughs> i don't think he has really many management decisions i think if he's doing one thing he's just making sure that everyone sticks to the to the to the build of materials to make sure the investors are, are making their their profit margin now to your earlier point about baking in incentives, right, for designers and for artists to make the best possible game, I think that's a great idea. But if I'm Gary, I'm probably like, why? Like, where are they going to go? Who are they going to go work for? You know, you kind of got these guys by the balls a little bit uh, because at least if you work for Stern, your game's going to come out, like when you're still alive, and it's, yeah. you know, there's, sure. they have like, they have, the, they have the emotional appeal. Like you actually can come into Stern every day and do something and be around people that are actually making pinball. How many times have we seen images of the Jersey Jack factory where there's like nobody doing anything? It seems like kind of like a boring place to walk into every day where Stern feels like the best culture imaginable if you want to work in pinball. Yeah, that. That's a good point. Let, let me just, let me ask you, just shifting for a second. Um, from a competitive standpoint, how aggressive do you think Stern needs to be on locking up a bunch of licenses? Very aggressive. And I, and I think they are. I, I think they've, they probably have licenses locked for the next, I would say, three to five years. And They'll probably, you know, I, I know a license might be like a three-year time period, but they'll just renew it. Right, right, <clears throat> right. But you think, like, I, I don't really know what a license will cost for pinball. Like, neither of us do, right? But, you know, do you think, just purely from a competitive standpoint, do you think, like, 2019, because there is increased competition, it would make sense to just lock up a bunch of licenses just to prevent others from grabbing them? Absolutely. Okay. We, 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 when we hear rumors like someone has the Pulp Fiction license, someone has this license, I, I, I tend to believe that it's probably Stern that has a lot of those licenses locked sure. up. So Jaws is a good example. The rumor that they have the Jaws license. We've been hearing Jaws as a rumored pin now for a few years. And, you know, I, I can only imagine on the, on a wall somewhere at Stern is every single title that's mapped out at least to 20, probably 22. 
Yeah. Because R and D's a year to a year and a half, especially on some of the 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 cornerstone titles on these games. So I think they they have a ton. Now we know that Deep Root has been aggressively going after stuff like eighties properties and popular licenses and was able to secure some of those as well. So it's definitely gotta be a it's interesting. I don't know how that works, right? It it's can a company like Deep Root go to a to an IP holder and say, look, we'll make your game next year. You know, Stern's been holding on to this license for three years. Wouldn't you like can we figure out, you know, a way to 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 take it from them and give it to us? I don't know. I mean, I, I think you have yeah. to wait till the time expires, but there might be an opportunity to get an IP holder to not renew a Stern if they're just sitting on it for, for, for just competitive advantage. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. I, I would love just one last comment on licenses. I would love to understand the Kapow relationship. Like, why are some titles licensed by Kapow and why are some licensed by Stern? Like, we'll never know. But like, I'm curious as to how the Kapow thing works. Well, I think Joe, through Kapow, I, I believe that Joe has a lot of relationships with IPs uh, based upon machines he makes with, I believe they're coin-op machines or, or slot machines. So Kapow mm. has existing relationships with IP holders um, in other things that Joe puts together. Now, Joe's sort of like a a, a licensing a kingpin out in the in the licensing world where he knows a lot of people. So it's to his benefit to be that sort of middleman in, in, in creating deals and partnerships between IPs and manufacturers of products. So I, I think that's where that comes from. And I think he brings Got a it. lot of IP to the table that Stern uh, wouldn't be able to maybe do as effectively or as efficiently um, if they weren't with him. And so I think Batman was a good example of that and, and, and obviously Beatles most recently. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, right. <clears throat> it's funny that a lot of those licenses, like you can't even get a meeting with them. So I think that's a good point. Like Joe, because he's in the industry, must be able to open doors that Stern potentially can't. Right, right. Cool. Okay, so in terms of, I know there's other like marketing things that you're, I'm looking at your incredibly detailed yeah. notes, Dave. But like, I, I think... At, <laughs> When, when, if I look at Stern Marketing from just an overall standpoint, I do think they do a, a, a phenomenal job in, in terms of pinball marketing because as I always say on this show, the most important thing you can do when you're marketing a non-essential toy is close the window between reveal and shipping. The more you give people time to think about it, the more time they will probably bail on buying it immediately. But if they know they can get it in a, in a month or two, uh, you will get far more sales. And I think that is the most important marketing lesson that every other manufacturer falls down on, is they're in such a rush to look like big shots at these, I believe, totally unimportant pinball shows. They'd rather be at these shows and, and be signing autographs and reveal something way too early and then it completely hurts their sales of their product. Yeah. Like, cool, Chuck, you were, you, you were the man at TPF. Cool. Nine months ago. Where's your game? Still not out. <laughs> yeah. How does that I, help I don't know you? why. Yeah. I don't know why anyone releases it shows at all. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And Stern doesn't. 
If you look at Stern's yeah. releases, they always do it normally around the shows. I mean, they didn't they didn't release at Expo. They didn't release anything at TPF. What they utilize the shows for, and they're smart, it's better to have your game already on the line shipping to people. And then when the show comes, then you bring Eddie Munster up there with his Munster's cars and you sign translites and you get people coming to that show to order the game from your distributor at that show. And guess what? Then their game's shipping to them that week. That's okay. how you sell a pinball machine. They're smart. Yeah, yeah you're right. We'll see how Deep Root handles it, right? They, they, they've learned, well, that lesson is well known. It'll be curious to see who follows it. Right. Okay, so cool. I think Stern does so much right. I A few other things, sales and marketing. I, I saw they just updated their website. It's brand new. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really like it. Uh, <laughs> that's a very a subjective <laughs> thing. Uh, I, I don't think it does a great job of, of capturing like a, 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 like a pinball company and getting me excited and hyped to play pinball, but that's just me. Uh, I also think Stern could do so much more on social media and so much more on YouTube in terms of putting content out there that would make people want to buy their products. And if I had one wish for them from a marketing standpoint, it would just be to tell the story behind these games in a better way um, during the reveal months of the machine. I, I think they sort of do the same formulaic launch every time with like an IGN or someone and then there's it's always like low res images for the first 48 hours on pin side and, and why why can't yeah. we just get you know the designers out there telling the story high res images of the game again I, I say this Dave as if they don't sell out immediately with game sight unseen so it's like <laughs> as much as I say these are weaknesses and things they could do better it, it does, it's almost like doesn't even matter and they know that they, yeah. they could show us a a napkin drawing of Jaws pinball machine Ellie and we would it would sell out immediately you're absolutely right you're absolutely right <clears throat> you're right to suggest that um, I think like the Olympics in particular is really good about sort of telling these stories about the athletes that get you sort of emotionally involved um, and there's an opportunity there for the fans but you're also right like it, it doesn't matter like you're solving a problem they don't have um, but they do have a problem that their buyer demographic is aging quickly and there there is not a, a new generation coming in right but um, anyway now let me we got some more interesting things to talk about with Stern so should we do this because I, I this is this always happens with podcasting we're at the 45 yep. minute mark yep. should we just do a Stern deep dive and and then just do a different episode on each manufacturer I think that sounds great let's do that because I don't want to leave out some of this stuff because I think it's really interesting to talk about and I also would love to have you come back on and we can we can do the same sort of analysis of everyone and, and, and do it like one at a time. And I think the listeners would enjoy that. That sounds great. Chris, I, I, one thing if you're up for it, um, I, I would love to hear your take on Stern sort of partnering with more boutique brands, right? Like, so the work with Supreme, and I know a lot of folks didn't like it. I, I thought it was really clever. Like, are there other brands you think that they could partner with that would help sort of expand the market or, or test 
you know, getting additional buyers in? Do you think there's any low-hanging fruit there? Well, I think the opportunity for boutique, and and I think I think Supreme was was a genius partnership. But I think what that does is it creates a really unique product for that other fan base. So Supreme fans love that game. Pinball fans hate it. So if you were to ask me, does that expand the pinball market? I, I, I don't really think so. I think what that does is I think it it creates a halo item for Supreme collectors. But I don't think that person then is going to be turned on to other pinball games because of that. They're not going to want, you know, fill the room with there's a second pinball machine. They're going to want to put that thing next to their Louis Vuitton Supreme bag and their Supreme boxing bag and their Supreme bedspread. You know, it's like, that's what that person wants. Um, now that being said, I do think it helps from a PR and awareness standpoint of pinball. So to, to, to articulate that when Stern did the partnership with Supreme, they got more people just thinking about pinball. In, in in the modern day than all of the other Stern reveals and announcements over the last probably 10 years. If you add mm-hmm. up all the news stories and the views to the video and the commentary, more people, because millions of people are into Supreme and not that right. many people are as into like new pinball games. So maybe not 10 years, but they, they literally uh, used another hot property to also, you know, show people that pinball still alive and well. So I think I, there's a lot of maybe ancillary sort of interest that might develop from that. Um, mm. But I do think there's obviously a lot more boutique opportunities. I, you know, I, I do go to fashion a lot because I think there are other fashion houses that could create boutique pinball games. And I can just see like the kinds of dudes that are on pin side would cringe if they heard like you can make a Gucci pinball machine and sell one in each Gucci store around the world. And let me tell you something, they would sell. Um, But people, you know, and, and again, people in pinball sometimes don't want to see the outside world, but the Gucci brand is now an $8 billion like brand. No pinball company is worth that. I know uh, Neiman Marcus, the the department store, has like a very exclusive, super expensive version of basically the Sharper Image catalog yep. that comes out during the holidays. Of like, hey, here's all this exclusive stuff with these really high end brands, and it's like right. tens of thousands of dollars. Well, that, and that's things. that's where the Beatles Diamond Edition should be in. I mean, right. they they sell the highest end version of something. So if there's a twenty five thousand dollar Beatles pinball machine. That sort of makes perfect sense to be in Neiman Marcus's holiday gift guide, right? Um, right. So there's definitely an exam- There's definitely an opportunity for more boutique stuff. Um, what I would like to see, though, is if you're going to go boutique, that the games are somewhat original. What what I what I think is disappointing is when the boutique games just become reskins of stuff we've already seen before. Um, because then you completely turn off the pinball enthusiast to that new boutique pinball game and we're seeing that with primus right it's just like you're you're layering on top of a mediocre game that we've already had two examples of another you know another license and so will that work you know the primus is a good you know the primus game is i think a good example dave of 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 a boutique game being made Will that work? Do you think they're going to sell all 100 Primus machines? 
Yeah, I do. And I think it's going to sell it all to Primus, right? Like, so they have uh, it, right? But do you think yeah. do you think then Primus will be able to sell them to Primus fans? Yeah, I do. I do. I do. I I I think a hundred the right amount. But yeah, I do. I do. But I actually, um, if you don't mind, I actually disagree with you on this point. Um, or I, I want to challenge you a little bit on this yeah, point. Yeah. Like, I actually think retheming an existing design actually does make sense for the boutique, only because you're never going to get the pinball fan anyway, and like you actually don't care about the pinball fan. Like the whole point is to kind of test: are there other buyers outside of that fan, and to incur all the R and D costs of like coming up with a new game to kind of in essence test: like is this a good channel? I actually think it's kind of smart to like just skin stuff because it's a really low cost test of like, you know, will this work? Like, will right. this bring in more people? Yes or no? And so, right. purely from a bit, absolutely. As a player, I, mean, yeah, I, 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 I you're right. I mean, you're right. I mean, that is why Supreme reskin Spider-Man the pin, right? I mean, that's what that's a reskin of. Is that is that that was the reskin, right? Of the of the basic Spider-Man game they came out with. I believe so. Yeah, right. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the the thing is this: is making a boutique pin. Like, basically, it's it's a Stern is being asked to contract manufacture a pinball machine for another, you know, entity that's not designed for the the typical pinball buyer. It makes total business sense for them to do that, right? So, you know, what would be exciting? Imagine if we got a boutique company. To reskin dialed in. <laughs> right. Like take sure. a game where the theme was shit, but the game was incredible. All the R and D's done. Yeah. Let me let me ask as a buyer, let's just pretend just you as a buyer. If Jersey Jack was like, Great news, we've got Wonka and it's dialed in with the Wonka theme. Like, would you care? Would you buy that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question, and you and you know, I think we all have been expecting to see some sort of Jack going back to the parts bin, right? Because he's not; these games haven't sold at the levels they probably thought. But would I buy it? You know, I have to say no, right? And and I'll and I'll and I'll say why because it's just too soon. I mean, it's a good question about what's the shelf life of a design before you can go back to the well again when you're trying to attract the pinball enthusiast, mm. right? Because you could, yeah. you know, because well, okay, let's let's, but it's a dilemma, right? Because dialed in is such a good shooting game with such a poor yeah. theme. Now, here's why I also wouldn't, and this is just me, and maybe I'm a little bit of a hypocrite here. I do think when you're starting to design a pinball game and you know what the world is you want to create under glass, that from a blank piece of wood, you should start to create the Willy Wonka universe. There an, and if you've, if you've already inherited an, an entire design that was meant to be something else, it, it will always feel like a compromise. Always. And, and I know Stern got around that a little bit with Batman because it was an older Batman game, but I also criticized Batman 66, and I still do, that that game wasn't designed from the ground up to bring the Adam West Batman world to life. Like, there's there's a crane in it for no reason whatsoever. 
There's no Crane yeah. in Batman yeah. 66 show or movie. So, yeah. so would you buy it? I I wouldn't, but you know what I might buy if they if they took pirates and I agree with you in that like no one wants that IP today, but if they themed it as the pirates ride from Disneyland, I might actually be pretty interested in that. Right. Like with that old Mark Davis. So like something like that, where it's like, it still makes sense within the layout. Um, and it's a theme that like those old Mark Davis designs of the Disneyland rides are pretty cool. And, um, I actually might buy a pirate themed Jersey Jack if it were based on the ride. I definitely don't want the movie version. Well, you know, and and Dave, I mean, people are saying that about the game. They're they're almost starting to say, well, without all the clips from the movies, it just feels like a fun pirate ride versus a game based on all those properties, right from the film. Uh, yeah. I, I I agree. Like pirates is just a generic theme or based on the ride, and in the pirates life for me song and all the fun and campiness that goes along with that ride, is a perfect theme for pinball. Uh, I I just never would have made it the way they did it. The the the, the yeah. asset limitation would it just would have been dead on the, you know, within the creative boardroom that that title would have been dead for me right away once once I got the news that I couldn't use the theme song, I couldn't use any clips. I couldn't use any voice actors except for like one, no Johnny Depp, the, the protagonist of the entire film franchise. I can't use anything. No. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So <laughs> let's go. We have a few more things with Stern. Um, we have sort of operations. We want to talk about a little bit, right? Where, where were we on our list here? So <laughs> well, pricing and distribution. We want to talk pricing a little bit with Stern. Sure. 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 Um, so, you know, I do think they are in a unique position to, because they are the lead manufacturer, they do have the ability to experiment with pricing. Like, what are the light, what are the right additions? What are the price points? Like, how do we price it? What's, yeah, how do we deal through the distribution channels? I actually think, I know it drives fans uh, and collectors crazy, but I actually do think it makes sense for them to continue to experiment, both to find like how high does the high <laughs> go, um, and potentially even like introduce some lower end, um, cheaper models to see if that brings in uh, new fans. And, and I guess the vault edition is sort of that. But like, I actually think it's smart of them. Certainly, as a market leader, they have a lot of leeway to continue to experiment and see what the market can bear. Like, I think that's fine. And I think 2019, if I were in charge of their pricing, like I would continue to just test stuff out and see, you know, push on the high end, push on the low end and see where it goes. But I don't know. What, what do you think? I mean, I mean, we're living in that era with them right now, right? I mean, they're, they're now selling as much as it's being positioned as like this, the distributor selling it, they're now testing out to see if a $25,000 Beatles machine will sell, right? They're also testing out the $12,500 platinum edition of that game and then the $8,000 gold edition. So Stern has continued, I think, to test the waters. And I, and, I, and I think what Stern does so geniusly is they basically have figured out how to sell us 
what I believe to be a stern pro from circa 2007, 2008. Because remember, before they, there was no LE premium or pro back in like the Lord of the Rings when it first came out or the Simpsons pinball, right? Look at some of those games. And those games nowadays would be looked at as like super limited collector platinum diamond editions if they came out today from Stern, Mm. right? If you look at all that was in them. Yeah. I think what they've done geniusly if they they've they've literally figured out a way to sell you what was once their basic product now as a high-end limited edition game and then they remove from there to the point where I mean we could talk about how much we think it costs to make a stir machine but I I think somewhere they're, they're, the cost to produce one of these games is around like 2 to 3000 dollars and everything above a pro is is just all gravy for them uh, yeah. I think where they could charge even more, though, and this is where I think they're still not, we haven't seen the ceiling yet, it all comes down to supply and demand for them. And I'll, I'll give an example, and I've said this before. If, if they only made 100 Jaws Super Limited Edition games, and there was an yeah. extra feature and extra modes in that game, they could charge $20,000 and sell every one. I mean, I just yeah. it literally like it, they would sell, but we're yeah. but here's what, what what I don't like about what they're doing now is they're charging more for these games and they're pushing the price up with nothing more than rarity. There's nothing mm. in the game that's special. There's not even an additional code in these high end games like Beatles Diamond Edition doesn't come with an extra song. It doesn't come with an extra feature. It comes with nothing extra. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, I don't even mm-hmm. think it comes with better speakers. Yeah. It doesn't even come with, huh. I don't even think it comes with a shaker motor. Right. Right? And, and so it's like, that's my issue, is they're pushing up the price ceiling without adding any value to the games. And that makes me feel like they're just trying to, they're not trying to see how great they can make a pinball game. They're trying to see how big of a sucker we are before we call timeout and demand more in the game for that kind of price. I, I totally agree. But that, I mean, that is one of the hallmarks of a shrinking market, right? When you have a shrinking market, one of the things you do is you just try to extract more and more value out of that shrinking market. And I think that's what we're witnessing, right? And it, and it works. And it's okay for a while until the market says uncle and, and they give up. But I think you're absolutely right um, on all points. Like But is it shrinking or, I mean, is Stern... See, that's the thing. We don't have the numbers. So I don't know if Stern's sales in 2018 were the best ever, right? I don't... We don't know. We, we don't. I mean, there has been some research that you can find on the web. There's a website called Statistics. I want to say that that claims to show the total size of the pinball market over, I think it's a 10 year span ending in 2015, I want to say. So, um, and it shows the market sort of being sort of diminishing like 10% year over year and then being right around like $230 million in 2015, I want to say, if memory serves. So, who knows? Like, who knows if that's accurate or not? But like, if we even just pretend the market is 
200 million and we say the average price of a game sold is 5k that's basically 40,000 machines right. sold in a year like do you think that sounds about right 40,000 in total across the industry yeah. no way yep no way too low no too high like new machines oh, too high 40,000 yeah. yeah i mean worldwide well let's think about it like this if there's just no I, okay so is a good stern title nowadays like what do you think sells like in total not premium oh, pro well, le uh, uh, well i'll say on average like 7k maybe i see i think you i think that's way high you think i'm off i, I oh, think okay. a good stern title now is 2 to 3000 units a blockbuster is like a metallic at like 5000 units or acdc but again that's over a period of years i think in one year stern is selling like 2 to 3000 of a, of a blockbuster title and then sales have to really slow down in years two and three of that title right so let's say they have three cornerstone titles let's just say for for hypothetical sake let's just give them the benefit of the doubt they sell 4000 of each of their cornerstones, right? So that's 12,000 games in their cornerstone titles. Even if we l lob in another 10,000 for their other titles, that's 22,000 there, right? And they have 90% yeah. of the market. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it just goes to show you how small the market is, right? Like, it's really tiny. But... um well, let me, let me ask you this, Chris, like to your point, like Stern is definitely experimenting with upsells, right? Like they've always, you've had the shaker motor upsell Invisiglass, you know, you've mentioned like play field protectors is a really obvious choice. Do you think Stern and people would hate this, but do you think that they could do an upsell around maintenance and support? Kind of like a stern like care type of warranty thing, warranty kind of deal. Yeah, like like an Apple, you know, Apple Care type thing. And I'll ask you the other question: What if they charge for updates after a certain point? Like you can get the Batman sixty six updates for free up to one point zero, but we're going to kind of keep innovating, and anything above that requires a subscription. If if they had a pedigree of always giving people final product without bugs they could do that but because they have such a history of of giving people games that are half built when it comes to code they would get they would they would burn the stern factory down if they tried to do that now what i think they could do i do think they could sell you an entirely new or like code experience with your game it would have to be very significant and and I think people should pay for it once you're past the point where, like, the game is done, right? Because once you're done and, and games are sold and everyone's happy with, like, Metallica, right? Everyone's happy with Walking Dead. If Lyman went and added an all-new Walking Dead experience for 100 bucks or 250 bucks, who's not buying that? Everybody is. Yeah, and and why terrible. shouldn't we pay for his additional time when the game's already been done? It's and we see DLC content is what drives the video game world, but it only works if you actually give people a working game to begin with. 
Right. <laughs> yeah, that is it's kind of foundational. Yeah, right. But but I, but it, but it's also like another thing too. It's like you've bought this three hundred and fifty pound, you know, physical thing. That the only reason you'll get bored of it is because you might be bored of the code after a while, right? You get bored of doing the same stuff. You want to see new light shows, new modes, new music. You could add all that in and make that experience somewhat new again. Um, I do think we're going to see Deep Root experiment with that. That is smart. I mean, I think it's a great idea. And you're right. Like, it's really well-trod ground with video games, right? Like, those expansion packs, they do really well. Um, and, you know, it is a crime that these devices are not internet-enabled just to download the patch and, like, right. get auto-updates. Like, right kind of stupid but i guess people might think about it like this though i buy a video game for 60 bucks i don't have a problem buying dlc content when i pay five to twenty five thousand dollars for a pinball machine i don't don't ever go back in my wallet i it's gave true. you a ton already Keep me happy and I'll buy your next game, you know? So so David, just because I wanna I wanna make sure we don't go too long on, on this podcast, you had some final thoughts on, on your twenty nineteen plan for Stern Pinball and what you think are strategic initiatives that they should do. Let's go through that list and then I'll 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 give my point of view and, and then and then we'll do this again real soon and, and go on to Jersey Jack Pinball at a later date. How's that sound? That sounds great. All right, that sounds cool. great. I'll I'll keep it really quick. I think, you know, it, if I were at Stern thinking about 2019, I would think about three things. Um, one, I do think it's a year to shore up the competitive defenses, right? There will be increased competition in the market. Um, how successful they are, who knows? But it is a lot noisier and more crowded. So I, I do think 2019 is a time to shore up your defense, which is potentially introducing an employee bonus plan to thwart poaching. Um, increase investment in the channel partners, both in terms of the marketing materials, but also your relationship. Um, perhaps get aggressive to your point on locking up those top tier licenses. Um, and then it might be interesting to showcase the value of their own intellectual property. To your point, there, there may not be a lot there, but those are all things they can do to kind of increase their competitive defensiveness. I think the second thing is invest in next generation of talent, co-op program with a local university, expanding the pool of contract visual designers, potentially audit where they have holes in their second tier of management, like those would all be smart things. Um, and then the last, I would, I feel strongly like as the market leader, um, 2019 is a great time to invest in expanding or at least attempting to expand uh, the overall market, right? And so potentially, do some PR programs around, you know, millennials are shifting back to analog. Like they love records. They love building stuff. They love beards. And now they love pinball. Um, that could be interesting. Um, you poo-pooed my movie theater partnership. So I don't know, maybe there's some other <laughs> retail play there. Um, and then, yeah, I do actually think it makes sense to experiment with a bunch of brands, right? Like Supreme, I think was smart. And, you know, do you do something, with bands, do you do something with some high-end brands? Do you try to get it in the Neiman Marcus catalog? Like, I think the name of the game is like quick, low-cost experiments to just see what sticks. And I, and I think 2019 is a good year to kind of test how to expand the market and just experiment. 
So right. I'll leave you with that. Yeah, no, I think those are all really good ideas. You know, I actually had this interesting PR idea for Stern to get them press, get young people excited about playing pinball and learning how to play pinball. So I'll give it to you real quickly. The number one, and I always try to come up with creative ideas that are built around a cultural insight. The number one issue facing all college students and young people today is our student loan debts. All right. It is, it is crippling young people. It, it, it puts them uh, in financial turmoil and for years, and it's in the trillions of dollars in America. People get scholarships to colleges all the time because of a skill set. There has never in the history of academia ever been anyone who ever had a scholarship because they were good at pinball, right? We're now seeing people give scholarships for video game players and, and professional coders and engineers for gaming. Imagine if Stern Pinball said, we are going to give someone a full ride to school, who, whoever is the best pinball player in the country, and you do a tournament from 16 to 18-year-olds, and whoever is number one can get a free ride because of the silver ball. And you would see so many young people learn how to play it would also be great because all of the old curmudgeons that smell bad and play in leagues every week wouldn't be eligible to, to be the face of the of, of pinball. You, you'd actually force people who don't normally play to, to, to learn how to play, which would be great. Again, I, I would think about creative ways to get media and young people excited and, and thinking about playing pinball. Because um, I do agree. I think culturally there's a shift back to, to analog. Um, I think those are all really good strategic initiatives for Stern. I don't think uh, the whole bonus thing would, would be in Gary's best interest because, again, I think they provide something that is impossible to find elsewhere for everyone who works at Stern. They provide a career in pinball that I don't think any other company would provide as good of a, an experience um, as Stern would. And if I was going to apply to work for a pinball company... I would start with the best and they are the best. I mean, like, sure. and I, and I, you know, I think too, is because we don't hear from so many of the people over at Stern. We don't, you can tell they're having fun. It's fun when you're winning in business, right? I mean, it's fun when you're leading the market. It, it, it can be fun to be a challenger brand, but I don't get the sense that like, it's as much fun to be over at Jersey Jack these days. I, mm -hmm. I, 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 when they do videos, it's always like, I don't know. Just there's not the same level of like excitement and hype. Um, I think one thing Stern could do if they really wanted to increase their sales would be to lift their ban on Canada's Pinball Podcast and actually <laughs> join the show and mm. sell to my listener base. Now I'm, I'm I'm joking, but Dave. I think those are all really great opportunities. Any final closing thoughts on 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 Stern Pinball? I I just think they're gonna have a great year. They're going to have a great 2019. Right. I agree. I think Stern's going to have a phenomenal year. What I do, what excites me about Stern in 2019 is that we don't know what's coming from them. And I think their ability to keep people curious, um, I think that creates hype. And I think they are the only pinball company that understands the importance of generating hype to get people to buy these expensive toys nobody needs. Um, I think their biggest weakness is the lack of magic on the physical play field and I, I they're able to get away with it because everyone else who tries to to make something better has fumbled uh getting their games to market 
and and so Stern yeah. has been able to just probably just laugh at everyone else's attempt to do what they do. Um, and I think their biggest vulnerability is just more in the high-end premium market. But I, no one can touch them in the five to six thousand dollar range in new inbox. Nobody. It's true. They've yeah, got you're it right. Locked. True. And cool. so, yeah. So the exciting year though for Stern. Definitely will be a great year for them. Um, and Dave, CEO Dave, you are a real CEO. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the show. We're gonna do this again. We can probably maybe get Jersey Jack and Spooky together. I think Stern for obvious reasons, takes up so much of the discussion because they are the biggest. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. But <clears throat> thanks for letting me uh, come on. And your show is great. And I really appreciate, you know, all the work you put into it. So thank you for putting it on. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy uh, that you listen. And I, I think that um, this show is meant to entertain. And, 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 and Dave, I think you've, you've educated people. Uh, which is also good because I think sometimes my pendulum swings more towards entertainment than education. So we'll we'll keep it going. Um, this is the first cool. of many that we will do with CEO Dave. So we have a new um, returning guest, ladies and gentlemen, on the show. And for those of you out there, if you have an interesting thing to add to the show, just email me at canadapinball at gmail.com. And we will maybe get you on the show one day soon. Everyone, have a great night. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Really can't get stay. over that old out, oh, baby. Oh, but it's cold, cold outside. outside.